and people gravitate, I think, toward tribes when they feel insecure. And that liminal space that we're in is one in which there's a lot of insecurity. What we need in a moment like that, in a place like that, where we're sort of in between times, is you've got to hear the voice that comes from outside the times. When our post-everything world has turned life upside down, how do you even know which end is up? If you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself, you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out. It's not enough to just keep surviving. We need to thrive again. This is Post Everything. A podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. Welcome to Post Everything. This is John. Today, Brad and I interview Trevin Wax, who is the Vice President of Research and Resource Development at the North American Mission Board. A former missionary to Romania, Trevin is also now a visiting professor of theology at Cedarville University and a regular columnist at the Gospel Coalition. Now, he's the author of many books, but we're going to talk about a couple of specifics today. His book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, which came out in the fall of 2022, and The Multidirectional Leader. So let's jump in now. Well, welcome, everybody. We're glad you're here. Trevin, we are really glad that you're on the show today. Uh, Welcome. I'm glad to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. We're going to dive right in. You've written some great stuff. You produce a lot of great articles. You had a lot of great books. And in a lot of your work, you acknowledge the liminal moment that we're living in. You know, just to quote a few sound bites that you say, in The Thrill of Orthodoxy, you say that much of society has slipped into an all or nothing battle. And you've also written that the anxiety and unsettledness of these chaotic times, a result of political polarization and technological advances and worldwide disasters, like we're with you, man. We are, this is why we're doing this podcast because we are in a liminal age. Yeah, that's one of the burdens I had in writing that particular book is that we're in this moment when a lot of things that seemed like they were normal or the Mm -hmm. standard, they've all been upended. So a lot of the things that you expected to just kind of be the status quo have been upended. And then it seems like there's a fight right now across the culture for what will become the new normal or what should become the new normal. That's a great way to put it. And everybody feels it. And it's not necessarily in areas where there's like a clear black and white, no shade of gray biblical pronouncement. We're talking about matters of prudence, matters of wisdom, how you handle things. And uh, the tribal impulses are really strong. And people gravitate, I think, toward tribes when they feel insecure. And that liminal space that we're in is one in which there's a lot of insecurity. And so people go looking for security. If you can't find it in the identity of yourself, which is always in flux, you generally begin to look outward. And that's what happens with, I think, some of the polarization we're seeing. Yeah, man, that's so well said. And in the midst of all that, you very rightly and and across your books and podcasts and everything, you really caution about not getting caught up in that dramatic instability and the tension of politics, social causes, cultural conflicts, conspiracy theories, you know, whatever it is that the new normal is these days. That challenge is almost this mission impossible, right? It's made even harder because our friends and our family members are getting caught up in it and they're saying things that you know, if you're not mad, you're not paying attention, or they otherwise interpret or insinuate that trying to stay differentiated in some way 
is now almost morally suspect or offensive. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I can think of several reasons why it would be important not to get caught up in all that. But what are the non-obvious reasons? Like, what is it that we're missing that is actually really essential and important? And how do we resist that temptation of getting sucked in? Well, I mean, the reality is different groups are going to judge you for not getting sucked in to different causes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, depending on who you're talking to, some of what you just said there about if you're not mad, you're not paying attention. I know people on the left who have been saying that for years. Mm -hmm. More on the political left, I mean. Mm -hmm. And I know people on the right who have been saying that for years. Mm -hmm. So I'm not critiquing that from the standpoint of that sort of the rage of the moment. I'm not critiquing that necessarily from one side or another. I think part of the, the reason why we've got to resist that, it is possible that we won't take stands that we need to take hmm. publicly because we're afraid hmm. of the political ramifications. And hmm. I don't think we need to baptize cowardice Mm. as if that is holiness. The squishy moderate is the actual biblical way, right? Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. But like, like that's, the, that's the thing. This is something that I, I feel like in different settings that I've said this in, it lands differently depending on the particular inclinations of the people that I'm talking to. But I was able to deliver some guest lectures at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford last year and, uh, and also to do a conference on C.S. Lewis up in Yorkshire. And so I got to, to do some speaking and spend some time in, in the UK, which was amazing. I stayed yeah. at C.S. Lewis's house for two weeks. I mean, it's just like, it's like a nerd's dream. Wow. Okay? Wow. <laughs> a theology yeah. nerd's dream, right? But one of the things I noticed there, and one of my cautions to people in the UK was, we're called to give a holistic Christian witness, which means hmm. we need to take care to always be be on the lookout for ways in which in order to be respectable with the people we care most about, we mm. would mute some of the sharper edges of Christian witness in terms of respectability. So for example, if the people whose favor we care most about are those who tend to be more on the, you know, the social and political left who are, you know, for lack of a better term, are seen as, you know, the global elites, you know, that talk mm. a lot about climate change and, and things like that it would be possible that we would really emphasize those areas of the Christian witness where we find commonality there and then de-emphasize those areas that would bring the, you know, the, the condemnation of some sure. of those people that we want to win favor with. I think that is a constant temptation. I also think that the same temptation is there on the other side. Like you'll have people who all day will talk about our duty to protect and defend what marriage is or the life of the unborn or whatnot, or against some of the gender ideology havoc that's wreaking, because that really, those are strong motivating things with a, mm -hmm. a particular tribe that, you know, want to have favor with, but then maybe mute some of what the Bible teaches in terms of what it says about money and generosity and about wealth acquisition or our responsibility to the oppressed or to immigrants and things like that. So I guess what I'm saying on this is that the temptation to get sucked into that vortex, it can happen with a congregation and with church leaders, no matter which side you're on, and you will get applause yeah. for seeking that kind of respectability. In some ways, it's easier to give in to that temptation. But yeah. I think at the end of the day, the message of the church is the cross, not a cause, no matter how good the cause is. And... Mm. The world and the church in particular needs pastors, not pundits. We have plenty yeah. of pundits. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to maintain 
that sense of prophetic distance when we wind up in that situation where our pastoral leadership or preacher or whatnot could be confused with punditry. That's so helpful. I think what you just said reminded me of when I was first exposed to kind of your books and your work. And one of the things I was really searching for was just nuance. And by nuance, I don't mean the squishy middle that Brad was talking about, but just sort of this idea that you can sort of end up on one side of the spectrum and miss some things. And it makes me curious a little bit about what you produced in the fall. In the fall, your book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rediscovering the Adventure of the Christian Faith was published. And in that book, you explored our culture's view of religion, what orthodoxy is and why it's important. You quoted Tara Isabella Burton, who we've had on the show and uh, really resonated with that. So you had that come out in the fall. But then also last fall, you released an excellent 12-episode podcast called Reconstructing Faith. And in that podcast, you explore the church's credibility crisis and try to explore what rebuilding and renewal looks like. And so I can't help but see some of the nuance and tensions in both of those things coming out at the same time. So your book explored orthodoxy or right belief. Your podcast was more about orthopraxy or right actions. Your book explores the beauty of the faith. Your podcast explores kind of the gore in the church. And then the book cautions people not to abandon a faith that's been passed down for 2,000 years. But the podcast almost explains and empathizes with many who do want to abandon it. So there's this nuance there. I'm curious, like, what about this moment, this liminal moment caused you to create these two works at the same time? Yeah, I, you know, I've not really put them together the way you just described that. So thanks for, thanks for that. Um, (laughs) That's a really insightful way of looking at those two projects kind of together and seeing Areas of overlap, of course, but also some some tension points. To me, they come from a similar heart in that one of the aspects of the podcast was to say, in order to reconstruct toward a healthier church in the next generation, we've got to be able to simultaneously remove the rot Mm -hmm. from the church and fortify the foundations. Mm -hmm. So I think the podcast was probably more focused on some of the rot that needs to be removed the book is more focused on the foundations where we need to take our stand. Of course, the book recognizes rot and the podcast recognizes foundations. But if there's an emphasis on one side or another, I think that is there. And I'm burdened about the church because I I feel like it's so easy, as you guys talk about being in a liminal age, where we're in the midst of an epistemological crisis at some level, where people don't know what to think. They don't necessarily know what's true or false in some cases, what to believe and what not to believe. Or, and I think this goes for a lot of church leaders, very challenged in that they're they're insecure about some of the decisions they're having to make because they're decisions of political prudence and wisdom. They're discernment questions. They're not Moral. thou shalt or thou shalt not from the Lord kind of yeah. questions. Mm-hmm. And that's difficult because, I mean, I'm sure we're making mistakes here and there. Right, and, right. You know, like I mean, I, I think we're, I'm sure we're... You can't be walking through a time like this and us not have some missteps. Mm. What I want, though, pastors and church leaders to be able to hold loosely is to not get their identity wrapped up in the mistakes they may be making or they may make in the future that they may have made you know, in the previous years, but to wind up being able to say, okay, I don't know what to think about everything, mm. and I don't know what necessarily is the, the perfect path right here, but there's a place I can go 
I can dig down to the bedrock of the faith, the Trinitarian core of Christianity, and I can plant my flag there mm. because I know Christians have, have been planted there for centuries, millennia. And if the Lord tarries a hundred years from now, Christians are still going to be standing there. Mm. So part of the burden for the thrill of orthodoxy as a book was to help church leaders recover the confidence yeah. of what is absolutely mm. foundational. Like when the winds are blowing as much as they are in the culture of today, we've got to, we've got to have really strong roots and I think going back to the basics is one of the needs of the hour. I love the combination of those two things and the way that you articulated the connection there, because the church that we ended up planting out here in Colorado, not necessarily intentionally, this is just kind of how it happened, is that probably at least half of those in our church either experienced some kind of spiritual abuse themselves or know someone very directly who did. And so what I love about that is what you're articulating is an experience that, that I think and I hope that they've had at the table, which is an experience of orthodoxy that is not associated with the kinds of heteropraxy of spiritual use that you're used to. And it's very disorienting. We actually have a lot of people who start using the word deconstructing after they start coming to the table, in part right. because that's so disorienting. And what I love and appreciate about your podcast especially is I don't know if, if this is intentional, but it struck me that this is the ideal thing to send to somebody who is maybe frustrated with this whole deconstruction thing and doesn't understand it. And you seem to really be seeking to explain all the complexity of that to somebody who doesn't have an experience of why somebody might be going through that. Is that accurate? Because if, if so, I especially want to keep recommending it to people, but because yeah, it's so helpful. Yeah, for sure. We didn't do the podcast necessarily targeted or focused on people who have gone through some kind of a deconstruction process and to see if we could sort of use the podcast to pull them back. That's not mm. what the goal of the yeah. podcast was. If it winds up helping someone in that situation, that's fantastic. What I wanted to do was to take, there's been a reckoning in the church. Yes. And yes. that that presents challenges, yes, but it also presents opportunities. And the church is still going to exist in 50 years. What kind of church will it be? Hmm. The answer to that question is going to come from those of us who are still there, who are trying to figure out how do we rebuild after what's happened? How do we move to? And so in order to do that, well, you have to dig into a little bit of the reasons why there are, you know, why there is this turn toward deconstruction. And, hmm. it, you know, it's different for different people, what that deconstruction sure. Some of it's disentangling. I've heard it called disenculturation. I mean, there's different ways of talking about this. I think that's really important. I was just reading an interview with Lecrae who's now, you know, he's doing some music talking specifically about reconstructing his faith. And obviously he listened to my podcast. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, you coined but, it for sure. Yeah, yeah. But I love one of the things he said was some of the challenges, some of the things he had to realize in his sort of own deconstruction phase was Christianity is bigger than America. Like way bigger than America. And so that's one of the things yeah. too, like if we're going to reconstruct toward a healthier church in the future, we have got to be, and I think this comes out in the book and the podcast, we've got to be connected to the church around the world yes. and we've got to be connected to the church throughout history. Without that, we don't have the perspective we need in order to meet the challenges we're facing. Amen. Yeah. Speaking of that, in your book on orthodoxy, you define it as the foundational truths consistent with the scriptures upon which Christians through the ages have demonstrated agreement. 
I love that definition because it gets beyond the kind of like intellectual ascent that often when we talk about, well, what is belief? Demonstrated agreement. That is awesome, number one. But one of the challenges with Christian orthodoxy right now is that it has simultaneously been kind of rejected as too narrow in the culture at large, but also, and I think this is of the two, this is the kind of newer dynamic is that now it's just one orthodoxy among many that like in one way, our culture is kind of more comfortable with narrow orthodoxies, but it also seems to be really intolerant of any other orthodoxy that to the degree that it is historically rooted because there's I mean, the longer it's been around, just very practically, the more evidence of it being bad that can be found, right? And so there's this tension, like, for example, we could be talking about either social justice movements, right-wing conspiracy theories, kind of both pop and academic humanism. Like, they all have their own set of implicit or explicit orthodoxies that they truly actually believe that the rest of the world should share, right? And then the more fundamentalist of them, either the left or the right, use their own flavors of kind of a non-religious social excommunication, whether we call it cancel culture or whatever, of those whose orthopraxies don't line up with their orthodoxy, you know, in other words, their right ideology. So in the midst of this tension, John and I are pastors, so we believe and agree that orthodoxy surely matters more than ever. But I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts on in the midst of this kind of cacophony of competing ideologies there are a lot of Christians, like we just talked about, who are deconstructing or otherwise are asking, like, why does that matter so much? Why is demonstrated agreement so important? And what difference does that actually make in this cultural moment? Can you speak to that a little? Yeah, boy, there's, there's a lot there uh, in that question. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, let me just throw all of them at you. Yeah, yeah. no, no, I, I mean, I, lo I love uh, rich questions like that. I mean, the reason orthodoxy matters in this cultural moment is because it's beyond this cultural moment. Oh. So this is how you, yes. you, this is why orthodoxy is so important is because it's not bound to one cultural moment. Mm. In a time when all these competing orthodoxies are taking place and are present, and, and what's tricky about what you just described there is that not everyone realizes that they are promoting some kind of orthodoxy. Totally. Right. Yeah. You know? Right. I mean, this was happening a hundred years ago. Chesterton talked about how sometimes the most dogmatic people were those whose dogmas were unexamined. Like everyone's got dogmas. It's just the one that doesn't think they have any dogmas. It's generally the most dogmatic because you either know what your dogmas are or you don't, but everyone's mm. got them. So you're all building Correct. from some kind of assumptions about the world and some kind of philosophy of life, of way of seeing things. In our time, though, the reason why I think orthodoxy is really important is because, first, because it's a lot broader than the orthodoxies of our time, hmm. because it is something that's ancient and fresh. It's much broader than people realize. So heresies and innovations always get marketed as more innovative and as broader than they actually are. They get marketed hmm. that way. But it's actually orthodoxy that's broad, and the heresies are always narrowing. One of the key points I'm trying to make in the book to show that heresies are always trying to narrow the paradox, trying to resolve the paradox some way with like one particular mm -hmm. truth, but then divorced from and separated from other important essential truths within the Christian tradition. A discomfort with mystery. Yes, yes. And in thinking that in simplifying things, they're fixing something when they're actually <laughs> they're actually short circuiting yeah. something in wow. doing that. 
so one of the reasons why orthodoxy really matters in our day and age is not because it's narrow-minded. It's because it's actually broader than the orthodoxies of our particular age that are bound to our particular age that seem broader. So like the social justice stuff, for example. I mean, some of the social justice movement, Terry Isabella Burton, you talked about, you know, she talks yeah. about this as one of the pseudo-religions of our time. And what's interesting is, like, that's our word, you know. Basil the Great wrote on social justice like 1600 yeah. <laughs> years ago. I've got his book on my shelf, you know. Some of what is happening today is it's sort of aspects of Christianity, even some of the virtues of Christianity, divorced from the whole. So another thing Chesterton talks about is that it's not the vices of a culture, but the virtues when they run wild and are disconnected from each other that wreak the most havoc on the world. Ooh. And the Christian virtues, once they're separated from one another, so you take a Christian virtue like equality or consent or human dignity or whatever it might be. Glenn Scrivener writes about this in The Air We Breathe. Some of these things that are just seen as common sense today in our culture because of Christianity's heritage. But once they're severed from the root that they come from and they lose that sort of that sort of sacred origin, they run wild and they do more damage than you could ever imagine because they're actually there are so many reasons to go after some of these things passionately, but without that sort of sacred origin or that God-given framework, they wind up causing more damage than actually helping. And this happens all over the place. And I think we see it happening today in our culture. And one of the challenges for pastors is to help people see the longings for why people want certain lies to be true. Like why people would be tempted in a certain direction, why they would be drawn or compelled to join a particular movement or whatnot, and to help them articulate and understand, to dig down to see, why am I drawn to this? What aspects of that drawing are because of the Christian assumptions that you do have? And then what elements of that movement, though, actually move away from the Christian vision? We're very inclined towards sort of all or nothing narratives with everything. And I think pastors are going to have to help our people navigate through some of this in a way that leads to more wisdom in the future. And that's going to be really hard, really hard. We, yeah. we don't live in a world that today that appreciates that kind of complexity. We want simplicity. We want tribes. John and I have commiserated on multiple occasions. Like, do you remember when like the <laughs> questions that people would come to us with were like, can you, can we talk about the problem of evil? Those were the days. Like, like we, we actually <laughs> the know the days, answers yeah. to those questions. Like, the, yeah, it has this experience of like, you feel like you have to go back to seminary, except it needs to be in a, instead of a degree in divinity, it has to be a degree in like anthropology or something. It's a yeah. whole nother level of, yeah, wow. man. Well, I, I love that you title your book with the words thrill and adventure, the thrill of orthodoxy, because you're getting at something there. You're getting at, what we talked about earlier that people are getting sucked up into some drama and you're arguing that, Hey, listen, there's this grand story that we're part of. So I love that you use those words, but you mentioned something just about how pastors are trying to navigate with their people and trying to lead them through, you know, a minefield where things are coming from so many different directions. And on this podcast, we've tried to make this a resource for pastors, but really anybody who's leading some sort of organization or institution and just feels like everything's heated. Even if you're a business owner and you've got a small staff of 10, there's a good chance that your staff is split politically on some level, which is why I really loved the book, The Multidirectional Leader. The, the subtitle of that is 
responding wisely to challenges from every side. You mentioned earlier that we can have a tendency to like sort of lean left and miss things on the right or lean right and miss things on the left. One of my friends calls it punching left and coddling right or coddling left and punching right. And so you can kind of sort of pick any contemporary issue. And if you head in one direction around that issue, you'll probably gain a crowd. You'll probably have a clear voice. But, you know, when you talk about a multi-directional leader, is this the environment right now that you had in mind for that? Well, first of all, let me say this. Can you define what a multi-directional leader is? And then we'll get into a little bit more about the environment that they operate in. Yeah, the multi-directional leader means it's like you being a shepherd responsible for a flock. Hmm. And you're out in a field and you know that there are dangers that can creep up on the flock from different directions of the field. So you're not tuned in, you know, if it were a radio, you're not tuned into just one frequency. You can actually receive warnings from multiple directions. Hmm. It means having a certain level of dexterity as a leader. I call it a holy versatility hmm. in that, you know, at times you are you know, at times you're going to have to fend off wolves from one side of the field, but then there are going to be times when you're going to need to turn around and make sure there aren't challenges coming from the other side of the field. So slopes can be slippery in more than one direction. Yeah. Um, and what I'm trying to do with that book is to help leaders to, to do some self-examination of not only of themselves, but also their congregations. And to say, look, if my congregation were to drift, in what direction would it be most likely? And myself, like, how am I wired? You know, if I were to look at myself 10 years from now and, and were to say, I will have theologically drifted in some way or have moved, which direction would I be more inclined to do? I think that sort of self-knowledge and the knowledge of the people that we're called to shepherd will help us to identify the particular dangers in our congregation. Now, what's challenging right now is you may have different dangers for different people in your congregation. Yes. So this yes. is the challenge. It's not like your whole congregation generally, you would say, okay, a, a congregation generally, a flock may be more likely to go in one direction than the other, but you're always going to have some sheep that are not actually with the whole flock on that being the danger. So again, this is where it comes down to like being a really good pastor, shepherd, it's like being a pharmacist. You've got to mix the right prescription for the right people at the right time. And it's got to be the right mix. And mm. you don't want to give the wrong prescription to the wrong person because you could give some medicine to the wrong person and actually do them harm because that's not the medicine they need. It's medicine someone else in your congregation may need. So this is one of the challenges right now. I mean, but it comes back to actually pastoring, to really mm. knowing people to knowing where they're at, to knowing the particular temptations that might be appealing to them and yeah. being willing to step into that space and to sometimes speak truth into people's lives, whether or not they're ready to hear it or receive it, to do so and also being willing to run the risk of you being misunderstood as a leader yeah. or misrepresented because of that conversation or because of something you say when you're preaching or you know whatever it might be. Those are, those are really important tasks that we have and those are big challenges and it's just much easier to be one directional. Basically, yeah. why don't you just speak to the dangers that everyone in your congregation already agrees are dangers? Right. You can do that all day long and you'll get applauded. Right. People would cheer you. They'll say you're prophetic, really, because you're, <laughs> you're basically dancing around, stepping on people's toes, but they're never the toes of the people in the congregation. Oof. And that's such a temptation. In my mind, you can be a really hard preacher and still be tickling ears. Yes. Because you're a hard preacher against the sins, against against the sins of people outside the congregation that's listening. 
you're, right. you know, you're preaching fiery sermons, but it's directed out to them, not to the people mm. that God has placed right in your congregation. So I led a book discussion about six months ago, mainly summarizing your book for a group of other pastors. And there was a moment in that book discussion where there was complete silence. And the moment came after I explained the concept and I asked this question from your book. If my ministry were to distort the gospel in some way, what kind of distortion would it likely be? Hmm. And after that, I got complete silence because everyone got it. Everyone was like, oh, wow, that is sobering to think about that I have this proneness to lean one way and ignore something. I'm just curious, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to pry too much, but how would you answer that question, Trevin? If your ministry were to distort the gospel in some way, what would it be? You know, I think what's interesting is that at different times of my life in writing, there might be different answers to that question. Mm, that's fair. Sure. Because, I because I found myself at certain times really wrestling with different things. For a while, I think if my ministry were to have distorted the gospel in some way, when I first got going writing, for example, I think my leaning was toward anything that wasn't the fundamentalism of my childhood and upbringing. Hmm. Uh, so this is where like the emerging church conversation was attractive to me for a while because oh, I, mm -hmm. I thought they're asking the right questions. You know, they're recognizing a lot of challenges. So for a time that was somewhat attractive or appealing to me, you know, like the idea, and I even write about it in Thrill of Orthodoxy of not being too certain that somehow certainty can't coincide with humility and it's all mystery and ambiguity and things like that. So there was a time when that was the case. I think in reaction to that, there was then a time where I was sort of the young, restless, reformed guy where everything is sort of buttoned <laughs> up and I've got my theology down. And as long as everyone's good on doctrine, then everything's going to be great yeah. in the church. Yeah. You know, like just get everyone's doctrine right and it just solves all the problems. I think for a time, my ministry could have potentially distorted things in the other way and that there was a hmm. cognitive understanding of Christianity that didn't always necessarily where the connection to practice and, and orthopraxy wasn't as, as strong. So I think it's a fascinating question. And I think people that ask it and they think about their lifelong ministry may feel kind of like me, where there have been seasons in which if I were to distort or possibly lean, it would have been in one way or another. And I think that sort of self-knowledge will help keep us, again, not balanced, because not that you're trying to find some perfect balance, but where you're trying to to lead people in a way where faithfulness is, you know, Churchill uses that example of, you know, at times you've got to lean one way and lean the other way on the stern in order to keep the boat moving forward yeah. in the right way. I mean, I think pastoral leadership is like that to some extent. Yeah. Well, that's fair. And I've known Brad a while and I think we can resonate with that where we look back and it makes me wonder, you know, in five years, what will I say about this past season of ministry? Yeah. I want to play a little bit of devil's advocate with us here because Everything you're saying, especially about the kind of multi-directional versus one-directional leadership, like that sounds really great in principle. But man, like John and I are church planners. You know, there is a shot clock or, you know, depending on the urgency, either a shot <laughs> clock or a gun deer head in terms of like, you got to get this thing off the ground. And everything you're describing, I'm just like, wow, there are so many different cliffs I could lead sheep off of. <laughs> how the where how do I even go forward? How do I even move forward at all? Isn't it better to just like maybe just pick one direction and just like take the risk and go for it because at least there's some clarity there. If you're trying to like nuance everything to death, you're gonna just alienate givers and Sunday attendance, never mind, you know, enough volunteers for children's ministry. Like whatever it is, <laughs> that's not real satisfying for anybody. 
And there's not going to be, you know, a, a church here or a community here to do the nuance later if we're like paralyzed by just indecision. And I want to make it clear that I'm playing devil's advocate here because I still agree with you. That sounds hard on paper, and it's actually even harder to do in reality. Oh, totally. And this is one of the things I say in the book. There is no such thing as a perfectly multidirectional leader. You're not trying to become sort of the perfect multidirectional leader where you're equally observant to every particular danger that could come upon the flock from any direction. Oh, thank God. That's not the goal. And I don't even think that's reasonable or even worth trying. Mm. I think God gifts different people with different skills, with different passions, with different you know, things they bring to the body of Christ. And it's important to recognize that. And it is important to go ahead and cast vision and move. You can't simply wait around mm -hmm. for dangers. You've got to be moving in a particular direction. What I'm talking about in the book, though, and what I'm trying to help leaders understand is the goal isn't to be perfectly multidirectional, but the goal is to recognize that there are going to be challenges that appear from in some of those challenges, you're less likely to notice. You're mm. less likely to observe just because of the way you're wired, because of the way you're leading, because of your own passions, proclivities, whatever it might be. And the wise shepherd, even if you're not wired in a particular direction to be alert to particular dangers, you will at least want to surround yourself with people who may be more tuned into those frequencies mm. so that they can also help you to be able to, you know, kind of cover your blind spots. We all have them. So what you want to do is you just don't want to be totally blind out there as a shepherd. The mm. way that you lead people off a cliff is that you're generally one directional only. You think dangers only come from one side. You think as long as I'm guarded against that side, I'm good and I can do whatever I want. And I don't really need to pay attention or heed the warnings from anyone else. That's the way you wind up off a cliff. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is don't try to be perfectly balanced, multidirectional in every single circumstance. I don't think that's the calling of most people or even the giftedness of most people. But know yourself, know your flock, your congregation, your own inclinations, and then put people around you who will mm. at least help you be the best and healthiest version of whatever particular church plant or philosophy of ministry, theological vision for ministry that God has given you. You know, it's one of the things that I come back to Tim Keller's Center Church, where he's got that quadrant mm. of sort of the different ways. And I can't remember, you got the two kingdoms and you've got the the relevance yeah, and you've yeah. got the transformationalists and you've got the sort of the Anabaptists, you know, move. And basically Keller's point is don't try to be the perfect mix of all these things. Mm -hmm. Be the best expression that you need to be as a church within these quadrants, but at least be closer to the middle so that you glean the benefits from brothers and sisters who are in the other quadrants, who are in the other camps. That's good. I think that's vitally important. It's not trying to be the best mix of all of them. It's recognizing your particular DNA, but being in community with and in conversation with the people that are closer there to the center on the other sides as well. because. That's the best way to glean the insights you need in order to lead well, I think, in this day and age. That's good. That's helpful. I love that graph, too. I love that graph by Keller. It's challenging to look at. You know, I think one of the things that you identify in the book that was helpful for me is a lot of times we switch positions, and some of that comes from sort of an emotional cathartic rather than simply an intellectual switch. I'm going to just read a quote that you said in the book, the direction of your warnings become the opposite from your warnings before your old theological opponents become your new emotional allies alert to threats you used to ignore. You issue warnings in a new direction. 
but stop addressing the dangers you used to rightly warn about. Hmm. Over time, you develop a new set of followers animated by your new brand of one directional leadership. I thought that was so insightful. A new brand of one directional leadership. And eventually the fears that drive one directional leadership now work in the opposite way, leading you to abandon previous convictions. I'm just curious, if can you give an example or two of where that might fit or what you're describing in that quote? Oh, sure. So what happens is, this is not just an online phenomenon. It's also part of just how social realities work. But generally, people that wind up getting a lot of vitriol online or from people in person, generally, are not the people that are farthest away, but the people that are adjacent to whatever tribe that you're in, and they're seen as traitors to the cause. Mm-hmm. You know, And so if you wind up in a situation, so let's say you're like rock solid, conservative, theologically, whatnot, and you recognize that there's a danger of a kind of lovelessness with that sort of fundamentalist posture where there's a lack of love and concern for your neighbor or something. And you recognize that danger on the other side. You already know the danger of, I got to have sound doctrine. It's vital for the church. We got to believe the right things. But you recognize that there's a lack of corresponding emphasis on orthopraxy, Hmm. right? On love for neighbor, on living that out. And so you begin to speak to that in really profound ways. Well, it's possible that if you begin to do that and you begin to sound like people that are not in the tribe of sound doctrine people that you've cultivated, they will begin to like really push back and begin to question your soundness in ways that can really hurt. Yeah. And the hurt heart of a pastor is a really sensitive thing. Mm. And actually it's the hurt that comes from people that are closer to you that hurts more than people that are far away that would think you're just fundamentalist raving lunatic anyway. It's the people that, you know, have been your allies that are now turning on you because of the way that you're kind of challenging them. So what can happen is that sort of one directional approach of let's just have all the right doctrines and not a lot of focus on, you know, how this works out socially or how this works out in our community and whatnot. What happens is the pastor can begin to nurse those wounds with other people that have felt that similar backlash. And they wind up then beginning to only speak out against what they see now are the dangers of the sound doctrine tribe and the fundamentalist types and the whatnot because they've been hurt they've been wounded. So now they flipped this other way. And now they're only saying things that really resonate with those that are more theologically progressive or socially progressive or whatnot. So if for a long time, they seem to always punch left and coddle right. Now they flipped and they always punch right and they seem to coddle left. And over time, that new development leads them to become one directional the other way. They're alert only to these dangers that are on the one side because they've moved, they've switched sides and they've found their identity with another tribe of people, all who have similar hurts, wounds, and whatnot, some of them real, that are profound and can be very powerful. Again, it's one directional leadership. They basically have traded tribes. Yeah. And I've seen it happen with pastors who have left churches, pastors who have sort of moved from one movement to another within evangelicalism. I've seen it with leaders in other spheres who said some hard things and gotten blasted for them and then wind up only saying those particular things and never the things they said before that would have cut in multiple directions. So that's a challenge. That's a challenge, I think. Absolutely. What you just described, I feel like, God, I feel like I experienced that three or four times a year at least. I mean, depending on what the controversy du jour is, if you are pursuing some kind of like a transcendent orthodoxy, like you're advocating for, the risk for that seems to go up exponentially. 
because if you're trying to anchor yourself into something that is not bound to this cultural moment, this cultural moment is going to trigger the crap out of you more and more. And so is that observation accurate in what you're talking about? And also like how the hell do we cultivate an awareness of that temptation and resist it at the same time? Well, it's very easy to not resist that temptation and to just yeah. go along in the cultural moment. I mean, that's the challenge, right? I mean, it would be easier to just sort of go along to get along. But at that point, mm. I'm like, why be a shepherd? The sheep are going to lead. Sure. Mm. Wow. I'm like, what's the point? I mean, when God calls a shepherd, he calls a shepherd to do the work of shepherding. And if we're not the ones pointing to something transcendent that's going to challenge us at all at different levels, well, then what are we doing? What's the point? Because I mean, anybody can get up and play to the crowd. And I realize saying this is a lot easier than implementing it. That temptation is real because we're human, right? Because we don't want to be turned on. We don't want people to leave our church. You know, in some cases they see us as too narrow, you know, that we're sticklers for, you know, Christianity's sexual ethic or whatnot, or, or we don't want to see people leave us because they think we're too loose and that we're not getting involved in the political punditry that they'd want us to do, you know, rallying people to vote a certain way or whatnot. So it's easier to just move into that one directional sort of mindset. But I think it comes back to it. I know this sounds, it could sound trite or even naive, but it's like, where's our identity? Pastoral leadership is really hard. Mm -hmm. It's There's a lot of discomfort in ministry. That shouldn't surprise us. In the podcast, I talk about how discomfort is ministry. <laughs> that is part of ministry. Like, yeah, unless you're ready for discomfort, you got to question the calling, you know? So I think we got to ask the question back to what our identity is, our identity being secure, no matter how insecure it may feel in the moment when we're going to get hurt. And you guys know this. I mean, when people walk away, it makes you a little less likely, just a little less likely the next time to want to open your heart to really pour into people when you get disappointed. And we've got to watch out for that, that sort of jadedness that can come about. Yeah. And I think that feels like the most subtle and implicit of the temptations is that accumulated hurt over time that causes you like calcification of your heart mm -hmm. such that you begin to empathize with other people who are, who are getting heat and in so doing, you end up kind of leaving the bounds of what is transcendent and you start right. to get sucked in. And so the anchoring of identity you described plus a kind of emotional intelligence and a spiritual health and rhythms of rest, like there's just, there's an orthopraxy for shepherds that has to follow the orthodoxy in terms of our doing regular maintenance on ourselves and our souls. And so I really appreciate the way that you've articulate that pattern because I think there are some pastors and leaders who are willfully just indulging and sprinting down that road. But I think the vast majority find themselves there just subconsciously and not without their even realizing it. Well, that's because we're social creatures yeah. and we change our community before we change our convictions generally. Mm -hmm. People think, oh, I'll change my convictions and then join a different community. That's generally not how it happens. You gravitate toward a particular community and then you change your convictions. And I think Hmm. And I would just encourage you, I'm sure there are pastors that feel really wounded here. You've got to have pastors around you and other people around you who will help those wounds heal, but won't nurse those wounds. Because there's a difference between sort of nursing the hurts and grievances and getting to a place of healing. And so you've got to look for people around you that will help you be able to process and move beyond some of those wounds that just come with pastoral ministry. The temptation is to find people who will nurse those grievances with you forever because it feels good. 
And that's when you wind up gravitating toward that other kind of community of people that have been hurt in similar ways that then leads to the change of convictions down the road. Wow. Well, you might have just anticipated our last question because we want to respect your time and let you go here. But is there anything else maybe beyond what you just said, which I think would absolutely scratch this itch, but is there anything else that you would want to say to leaders in general to encourage them, you know, leaders who are particularly feeling maybe overwhelmed or outpaced by the rapid change of a post everything world, anything you want to say to encourage them or, or give them some hope and support right now? Yeah. You know, I love the illustration you guys have been using about being in a liminal age and being in the airport and whatnot. What we need in a moment like that, in a place like that, where we're sort of in between times, is you've got to hear the voice that comes from outside the times. Hmm. And so you've got to be reminded of the destination, the ultimate destination, not the destination of next year or five years from now, and also where we've been, where we've flown from. And so Hmm. my recommendation to pastors and to church leaders is you need this for yourself and your people really need this as well. You need this for yourself so that you remain rooted and grounded, that you know where we've been and you know ultimately where we're going, even though you may not be able to see through the fog of the current moment. That's okay. But you need to hold on to the ticket of where you came from and you got the ticket of where you're going. And again, that's church history and it's the church around the world and it's the Bible telling us ultimately what it is we're supposed to be doing. So we need that as pastors and our people need that as well. Because when things are really foggy, they need the transcendence that cuts through the fog. They don't need more fog. And I'm afraid right now the temptation is ramp up the fog machine in this current moment and just basically succumb to all of the punditry of everybody else. And we wind up just becoming one more voice lost in the mix. Everywhere people turn, they're hearing all kinds of things about what you know, is the best solution for this or the best proposal for that or what we should be doing or how we should be thinking or how we, I mean, from cable newscasters to podcasters to to writers, to books, to celebrities, to politicians, to, I mean, everywhere they're hearing that. What is the one thing that they need to hear week after week? They need to hear, well, this is what God says. Mm, And as long as you are tightly connected, tightly bound to the text of scripture and you seek to not go beyond that, in your application to not bind people's consciences where the Bible doesn't bind them and to focus in on the the principles and the truths that have stood the test of time and that are there for us in scripture. That's that transcendent reference point. People may not think they're hungry for that, but they are. Mm. That's the one thing that will make us stand out in a world of all those competing voices. And so I think pastors need it, but our people need it as well. That's beautiful, man. Amen, Trevin. It almost sounds like you could write another book about discipling people eschatologically. <laughs> I've been there, done that. Which I'm, I'm kidding. You are, he already has. He wrote yeah. a great book called Eschatological Discipleship, where he asks, what time is it? We've been talking with Trevin Wax, who is author of The Multidirectional Leader, Responding Wisely to Challenges from Every Side, also the author of The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rediscovering the Adventure of the Christian Faith, and also the speaker and narrator behind Reconstructing Faith. That's the correct title, right, Trevin? That's right. Yeah. Trevin, thank you so much for your time. If you're interested in any of those things, we'll put the links in the show notes, but it's been so helpful to hear from your perspective. And we just thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. My honor. This is great. Thanks, man.
was so fun for me. I've really benefited from Trevin's podcasts and especially his books. And so to be able to get to talk to him and dig a little bit what's behind the books was really great. I really enjoyed it. I'm curious. So what did you take away? What's your so what? Yeah, man, I agree. Man, he beautifully transitioned kind of like our mapping out season one here between, you know, what it's like to live in a liminal age and into leading in a liminal age. And man, something he said actually toward the first half just hit me like a ton of bricks. He said, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said, he said something like, it's not the vices, but the virtues mm. that do the most damage when they run wild yeah, in the world. I remember him saying that. And it sounds like he was kind of maybe implicitly referencing Mark Sayers, others who have described how secularism is not actually an absence of Christianity. It's a Christian heresy in that mm. it is, you know, the pursuit of the kingdom without the king is how Mark Sayers would say it. And man, I love that because it actually explains a whole lot, especially in the extremes of our culture right now. Right. Take a look at, at the left. Right. You know, justice. And he mentioned social justice in particular justice that becomes, you know, as he put it, severed from the sacred origin or the sacred root mm. justice that is unanchored from the character of God. And I'm thinking, like, especially God's mercy mm. is not biblical or gospel centered justice. It becomes distorted. Right. And freedom on the right as an alternative freedom that discards the character of God wow. and especially the faithfulness of God, which, you know, is another way of saying like responsibility or duty, actually obligation, even like that's not actually Christian freedom, you know, yes. a freedom that, that says it's okay to burn the church down in the pursuit of your personal intuitional desires and dreams. That is not Christian at all. And mm. so a couple of things that I've been, like just mulling over since he said that is number one, if we want to see those virtues, those good things become re-anchored in their sacred origin, then we have to have an orthodoxy that transcends this cultural moment. And if we do in so doing, there's no way we're going to be able to succeed in that. If we think that it's possible to do so without significant discomfort, right? Yeah. Because justice without mercy is just cleaner. It's a lot easier, <laughs> right? You don't have to forgive enemies. You don't have to pray, you know, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do as mm -hmm. they're crucifying you, right? And freedom, there's no way that that becomes a Christian freedom again, if that remains the virtue above all other virtues. It's not. And, and I loved the way that he kind of progressed into the multidirectional leadership part with this, because if we don't actively anchor our identity in Christ. Let me be clear too in saying that our identity is in Christ. Yes. To anchor our identity in Christ is not to make our identity in Christ. Christ has done that. Right. But if we don't rest in it enough that we're actually also demonstrated in, in the local church, then we're never actually going to be able to meaningfully speak into these severed virtues culturally. And we definitely won't be able to embody an alternative in community. And that's everything, John, we talked about in part three, talking about Acts 2 and living as exiles. There's no way that's possible if we are not resting in our identity in Christ and demonstrating it in the local church. We'll have no practice. It's actually like he connected so many dots for me, and it just kind of now makes me kind of flabbergasted and amazed that we actually think that that's possible without it.
<laughs> right. Wait, it's, that what's possible without what? That is possible to like recover these virtues or oh, to, yeah. to reattach them to their sacred root. Because that's what drives so much of maybe not the left and right extremes, but maybe more kind of right and left leaning evangelicalism is this mm. almost naive assumption that we can we can be exiles and fit in really well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. Like there's a spiritual differentiation that I think we have severely neglected. Right. And it's just kind of amazing to me how much that one statement he made just connected a whole lot of dots for me on that. Yeah. And that's so true because I, I think we, especially as Christians, when we find a place of overlap with the culture, like we want to say, hey, that thing that you value, God values that too. Mm-hmm. But the other part of that that's always hard to say is, yeah, God values it, but it might look differently from God's perspective. Maybe even he values it more than you do. That's true. Right? Right? He actually values a justice that isn't limiting its flourishing to just the people who have experienced its opposite. The justice mm-hmm. he describes is one of shalom and flourishing and human dignity and worth that actually transcends lines on the battlefield too. Yeah. Man, that reminds me just of Isaiah 42 and the prophecy of the coming Messiah. He says, says, I will put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not break a bruised reed. He will faithfully bring justice. I'm paraphrasing here. He will not grow weak or discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. And I've always looked at that as like he can look at the mess and he doesn't get discouraged. He's still going to bring forth justice. But at the same time, you know, it's not just the people who have experienced the opposite of justice that then receive justice. It's sort of everyone. It's not just the punitive justice. It's the restorative justice that Messiah brings to the world. Do we have that in mind, that big of a picture when it comes to justice or anything of God? His patience, his mercy. It's completing the flourishing, the seeking the shalom of the city that just carried you away into exile, hmm. right? He's completing the thing that counterintuitively he's also calling his people to, but it's in a way that doesn't discriminate like we do. Yeah. So how about you, John? What's your so what takeaway here? Well, I've I've been thinking about, uh, you know, multidirectional leadership. I read the book probably a year ago and his illustration, I think he said, Winston Churchill used this, the idea of the boat of sometimes you're on a boat and you got to get everybody on one side and lean right because there's something on the left side that you got to steer the boat away. But then sometimes the opposite's true. You got to go to the other side. And I know I should know the starboard or whatever side, but I don't. I don't remember that. <laughs> starboard and port. There you go. Thank you. There you go. You know, it, it makes me think a little bit of as a leader, you don't just want to be multidirectional as a leader. You want your people to grow and mature in a way that they get the complexities and nuances and they can sort of see the dangers from both sides. So Mm. they don't just need you every time. And I think a lot of times what gets reactions on Twitter or even in preaching can be sort of like hot takes, right? And so you can like have a hot take and be like, hey, there's a danger over on that left side, like everyone on the right side here. And then, and your people then become reliant on you and like your leadership just becomes hot takes. But I think Mm. I think what I'm learning and what I'm thinking about is even wanting to be a multidirectional leader and wanting my people to be multidirectional thinkers 
is that that just takes a long time of helping them, shaping them. One of the mm. things I think that does that is expositional preaching, preaching the full counsel of God's word, but also not skipping stuff, right? And going for the hard stuff and teaching them how to think about a wide variety of issues. And they might learn something in January of 2018 that's not a hot take, but they're able to apply it in September of 2023 because they were shaped by it. And I think I'm thinking just more long-term, it takes a while to shape people to think multi-directionally. And even as I pray before I preach, sometimes people pray for me before I preach and sometimes I pray for myself. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I pray for almost every time, it's almost habit now, is I just pray that God would use the time to shape our thinking, to shape mm. our actions, and to shape what we love. And I think as people, we need help being shaped by God's word in those three areas so that we're not just responding and reacting and calling out a danger that everyone already agrees with, but rather we're able to handle the complexities of a world where there's dangers coming from every side both to our behavior, dangers to our behavior, dangers to the way we think with new ideologies, dangers to our affections with greater loves overtaking our love for the Lord. And so I'm just thinking like, man, I need a long-term plan on how to lead people. Mm. And I need a long-term plan on how to become a better multidirectional leader, but I also wow. have a longer, maybe not a longer plan, but a longer view of shaping people so that they can be live in this nuanced world and think multi-directionally as well. Man, that's beautiful, dude. And, and maybe this is a good place to end it, but what you're describing is reminding me of a few verses in James chapter five that I recently got to preach through with great fear and trembling. <laughs> he says in verse seven of chapter five, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. <laughs> being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In other words, mm -hmm. as Trevin was talking about and describing, we need to remember that ultimate destination, not just that there is a significant fog clouding our ability to see it. It's still there and it's coming and the Lord is at hand. And that is a, an incredible and beautiful source of patience to endure even this liminal age. Amen. Awesome. Well, thank you all for listening and we will talk to you next time. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.